I talked some time ago about the Buddha setting in motion the wheel of the Dhamma when he gave his first discourse after his enlightenment. What this turning of the wheel of the Dhamma was is teachings about the five spiritual powers of confidence and energy and mindfulness, concentration and wisdom. These powers of mind are also called the governing faculties because they function in a particular way when they're strong in the mind as a protection against the kilesas, that is, as a protection against the arising of the defilements. When these five governing faculties are strong, the hindrances that can arise are no longer quite so overwhelming. We have some inner strength or inner protection. I think it's helpful to realize also that the way our mind is, is also the way our life is. But the reality of our life, the reality of our experience, depends upon the quality of our minds. And so as these governing faculties become strong, we find we begin to live our life with greater ease and greater simplicity and greater equanimity. Developing these spiritual faculties, these governing faculties, is like developing a skill or a proficiency in anything, in music or sport or dance or an intellectual discipline. That is, through practice, they can actually be developed, they can be strengthened. Tonight I'd like to speak about different ways these spiritual governing powers of mind can be enhanced, different ways of strengthening and sharpening these qualities of mind. You've been practicing now <clears throat> more than a month and have established quite a good base of attention and mindfulness. It may seem to you that you're simply more aware of the times you're not being mindful, but that itself is a function of greater awareness. So the base is there, the foundation is there. At this halfway point in the retreat, I think it's useful to consider ways of refinement, ways of strengthening those faculties which have been being developed. The first way of sharpening and refining these controlling faculties is through the strength of right understanding. The understanding that we bring to our experience 
has a tremendous influence on how we're relating to that experience. For example, if we have a strong belief and conviction and sense of self, of I, of me, of mine, then we're going to be relating to thoughts and emotions and sensations in a particular way. That is, we'll be relating in a way that's very identified and very involved. If we have a different understanding, then we relate to those experiences in a different way. There's a story about Sariputta, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha, which captures the essence of right understanding. It seems before he met the Buddha, he was a young man very interested in philosophy and spiritual practice. He'd been with different teachers. One day he saw one of the first five disciples of the Buddha. And one of the, those first five monks who had become fully enlightened, his name was Asaji, he was walking by, and Sariputta was very inspired by the peacefulness of this monk as he was walking by. So Sariputta went up to him and asked, you know, what, who is your teacher and, and what is the teaching? Nasaji said, I'm newly ordained in this order. This is even though he's fully enlightened. You know, my teacher is the Buddha, you go speak to him. But Sariputta was very insistent. He wanted just something. You know, he wanted just a little bit. And so he pressed Asaji. And so finally, uh, Asaji replied to him, just the essence of these teachings Everything which has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. It seems so simple. Everything which has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. If we can live that right understanding, if we can really live that moment to moment, it has a tremendous influence on how we're relating to our experience. It leads to a much greater sense of acceptance. It leads to a sense of self-acceptance. Because we know that whatever is arising is going to pass away. It leads to an acceptance of the different objects of experience. It leads to acceptance of situations. That right understanding, which is so simple, everything which arises has the nature to pass away, alleviates, to a large extent, the sense of struggle that we get into. Because struggle means non-acceptance. It means something is going on that we are not allowing, we don't want. We can see how this right understanding works as we look at different elements of our experience. We can look at the different sensations in the body. Perhaps there's painful feelings in the body. If we look very carefully, 
we begin to get in very close to an area of pain, we see that it's not something solid, it's not something fixed, it's not something that lasts forever. When we get in close, and if you can, if you can observe very precisely and minutely, begin to see that what we're calling a mass of pain are points of intense sensation. And if you can observe on that microscopic level the pinpoints of sensation, what we find is that each of those points is arising and vanishing and changing and dissolving. And the next trillionth of a second, there's another intense point of sensation. So there are many of these points, but we see their flux, we see their change. And so the mind is more spacious around them. We can see how right understanding works also in our relationship to emotions, different moods. It's so common when there's a strong mood or feeling and we're caught in the depths of it to have that feeling or to forget that it will ever pass. Remember early on in my practice, so often these feelings of depression and discouragement would come. And I'd just be walking around with this cloud in my mind, just feeling this is how it's going to be, you know, forever. But at a certain point, as I began to understand in a more clear way that things are passing, what I would do to help me strengthen that right understanding in that moment is to expand the time sense. I would tell myself, in six months, are you going to remember this depression? Not with my memory. In <laughs> <laughs> six months, it'll be gone. Not six months. You know, next week, by the end of the day, perhaps. You know, and just if we can change our perspective, so instead of being lost in this feeling with that sense of it lasting forever, we just remind ourselves, we bring to bear this aspect of right understanding, of right view. And it helps to open the mind, it helps to create the spaciousness where we can see that everything is changing. There's an even more subtle aspect which is extremely interesting in terms of understanding this meditative process. And the power of it is contained in the last words of the Buddha. Just to imagine the scene for a moment. Here the Buddha spent 45 years teaching. He's about to pass away. And these are the last words that he's saying to people. And given how clear he was about everything else, it's not hard to imagine that they're extremely pointed words. He said, subject to decay, are all conditioned things. Work out your realization, your awakening with diligence. 
There's a very profound implication in these words. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Conditioned things here means everything. It means everything we experience. All the sights and sounds and smell and taste and sensations in the body and thoughts and emotions, the whole range of mental phenomena, everything is conditioned and subject to decay. So what does this mean in terms of the understanding that we bring to our practice? It means that there is nothing arising in experience which is lasting of lasting value, which actually will bring us peace. What can happen very easily as we're observing, as we're developing this mindfulness, we can be observing very carefully the breath and sensations and realms of silence, a whole realm of experience. We can be observing it with some subtle or slight anticipation of what's coming next. You know, there's an in-breath, and most of us expect an out-breath. There's a sensation and some expectation of another sensation. So it's, it's as if our minds, even while being present, are looking forward to the next thing. And this looking forward can be the very next mind moment. And so it's a very subtle attitude But what that attitude does is imprison us in the realm of the conditioned. And the Buddha's words are saying, subject to decay are all conditioned things. So somehow we have to find that place of awareness in which there is no anticipation, no expectation, no looking to the next moment give you an image which might help crystallize the subtle shift of attitude. Just imagine yourself riding in a train. And you're looking out the window and you see what's passing by, but you also see what's coming up ahead. So you're kind of, you're watching, but you're, you're also anticipating the next, the next sight. Imagine yourself now on the train riding backwards. You know, you're facing, facing the other way. You're looking out the window, and all you're seeing is the last object passing away. And because you're facing backwards, you don't know what's going on. There's nothing coming. You don't know. You have no idea of what's coming next. See if you can sit facing backwards. You know, on your zafu. It's just each moment, it's just passing away, passing away, passing away, without any sense of looking forward. In one of the um, books that I've seen of the ten ox herding pictures, which are you know, part of the Zen teachings, it's very interesting. It's this man riding an ox. In one of the last pictures, 
he's riding the ox into enlightenment and he's facing backwards. So I just offer the image as something to play with a little bit. Everything which arises will also pass away. All conditioned things are subject to decay. And so we want to have that understanding, bring that understanding into our practice so there's not even a subtle attachment to any kind of experience. Just about, it's just that, psh, just letting go of that attachment. Right understanding. When we reflect upon it, not particularly in a discursive way, but when we can hold it in mind as we're observing, it very much strengthens these spiritual powers. The second way of sharpening these faculties, and that is having a great care and respect both for the practice and also for ourselves, for our own efforts. When we reflect on the purpose of what we're doing, the purpose of Dhamma practice, the meaning of it, we begin to reconnect with that understanding that it is this priceless jewel in our life. Because what the Dharma practice is about is a transformation of consciousness. Now, it's a process of purification of our hearts and of our minds. And if we can stay connected to this, it arouses in us this attitude towards practice, which is tremendously caring. We begin to work on a basis of tremendous self-respect. This, as you well know, is a tremendously difficult undertaking. And there are not many people who have made the life choices to do it. It's a lot of hard work. There should be an honoring you know, of, of our commitment to do this. It's very rare in this world. We've committed ourselves in a very meaningful way. It's not, it's not a trivial way. The level of effort and the level of commitment that you're making. There's a commitment to the uprooting of greed and hatred and delusion. This is what the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta about the purpose of this practice. He said, there is this direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, for the gaining of the right path, for the realization of Nibbana. 
that is to say, the four foundations of mindfulness. So what the Buddha is saying is that the path that we're on is the path to the end of suffering. He talked about the development of this path as being gradual. He said one's understanding of the Dhamma is like the ocean floor which gradually slopes away. We practice and practice, sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk. And from one sitting to the next, it might not be clear how this process of purification is happening, but there is this gradual deepening and ripening of our understanding. Used another example of a boat being tied to a dock where the rope is hanging in the water. And just as the rope stays in the water, over a period of time, it begins to disintegrate until at a certain point it breaks. In just the same way, we're weakening the power of the kilesis. They're weakening and weakening and weakening. And one morning, (laughs) gone. One of the ways of developing this care and respect in our practice is to take the time to honor each moment. That really means slowing down. Because when we're rushing, when we're moving quickly, there are so many things that we miss. So just to be present, to be slow, to be caring, to be respectful, to have an appreciation for one's own efforts. This this gives a lot of confidence and a lot of beauty in the practice. It's not only care and respect for our own efforts, it's also care and respect for other people. And that takes the form in this kind of situation, really, of being particularly considerate. To remember that we're both alone with a hundred other people, everybody doing the same work, facing the same difficulties. And so we don't want to get so absorbed in the moment that we lose the context. A lot of sensitivity is required to be with this many people and stay very considerate of each other, of the silence. That's another kind of care and respect that can be developed. This leads to the third way of sharpening these faculties. First is the foundation of right understanding. The second is the appreciation or the respect or care for ourselves, for the practice, for others. The third way is practicing and developing perseverance and continuity. Continuity of observation, continuity of mindfulness. What this means is 
slowly reducing the recess times, the times where the mind just goes out to play. As we work with the continuity, the momentum of energy and the momentum of mindfulness and concentration begins to get strong. Many times the mind's going to go off. The best Vipassana mantra, just begin again. Every time you go off, just begin again. It's so simple. It's not to get involved in a judgment and a comparing. Just begin again. When we come back to that simplicity, we keep the momentum building. The power of this continuity, of this very steady noting and observing, is it begins to keep the kalesas, the hindrances, more at bay. One time I was sitting in Nepal with Upandita, and I just had one particular bout, very strongly, for some hours of the comparing mind. I was just comparing myself to everyone and judging everyone. You've probably had one or two thoughts like that in this month. I went into the interview and I reported this. And his answer to me was so simple that it was amazing I didn't miss it. Because all he said was, be more mindful. But somehow, somehow, it actually went in, instead of just bouncing off. Be more mindful. Oh, okay. And I went out, and I actually was more mindful. You know, and just came in closer and observed more continuously. And lo and behold, there was less comparing, less judging, because there was no time for it. The mind got so close to the object more continuously, and so those kilesas or those hindrances didn't have time to overwhelm the mind. And if they came, they were seen more quickly. The simplest things are sometimes true. Be more mindful. One of the gaps in the mindfulness, which is an open invitation for comparing and judging, and it's a gap that's very often not recognized, we don't even realize that it's a gap, is in our noting of looking and seeing. Now, as you're walking through the building, you may be more or less mindful of the steps you know, and the feeling in your leg. But even as you're doing that, you know, glance here and there, catch a glimpse of different people. If you don't note that looking and seeing, the attention goes right out through the eye door. Concept is created you know, of other people, of man, of woman, of what they're wearing. You like it, you don't like it. They're moving too fast, they're moving too slowly. And this proliferation of thoughts and feelings and comparing and judging all coming from that unguarded moment of seeing. 
it's difficult to work with the noting of seeing because it's not quite as tangible or impactful as an actual sensation. You touch your foot to the ground, mostly that's pretty obvious that something's going on. You know, it impacts. With seeing, the impact is more subtle. But after this time of practice, I think it would be a, a good time to begin to pay a lot of attention to that and to see the effect of closing that gap in the continuity. Continuity means steadiness of noting. Just with each moment, can you frame that moment's experience? As we've mentioned before, there are only six things. You know, it's either a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste or a sensation or a mind object. Steady, 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 noting, 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 noting. Nibbana. <laughs> it's amazing to think that that's all it takes. That is what it takes. That's all. To do it without hesitation, without holding back. Sansanim, the, the Korean Zen master, who speaks wonderful Buddhist English, <laughs> he says, just go straight. That's what practice is about. Just go straight. No hesitation, no wavering, no, 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 no. Okay, how to strengthen this ability to note, how to strengthen this continuity. One way is to pay particular attention to noting the changes of posture, because that's often where it gets either quick or too complex and we lose it. Really break up into separate movements, the change from sitting to standing, or standing to sitting, or sitting to lying down. Well, that's when Ananda was enlightened, just in the moment of lying down, of getting on his bed. See how carefully you can note each particular movement within it. In the walking, or in the sitting practice, the continuity can be strengthened by re-aiming with each breath, each step. If we can remember, okay, each breath, re-aim the mind. Re-aim it, refocus it. It collects the attention again. We miss less. Note carefully the feeling of rushing or straining. That's a very good feedback. When you feel that there's some struggle or some rushing, even if you're moving very slowly, it's kind of an energy toppling forward, the feeling itself is a feedback that the mind is not just with the moment. It's anticipating. It's ahead of itself. And so use that as a signal. Note the rushing or the straining or the struggling. Settle back. Stop for a minute. 
pausing before each movement. Just a moment, a split second pause. And in that pause, you will be aware of that sense of about to. And so automatically and quite effortlessly, the awareness of intention begins to get strong. Before standing, before reaching, before bending, before turning, all the minor movements, just pause for a a moment, half a moment. In doing that, not only will the continuity be greatly strengthened, there's a certain grace that comes from being aware of our movements from the very beginning. So it's not like we're rushing into something or we're toppling into the movement. It's like, shh, pause, and then go into it. It's like, it's like a beautiful classical dance. Note the minor movements that you're making through the day. No slight shifts, no scratches, different little things that you do, see how careful the noting can be, how continuous it can be. Note seeing. Now sometimes people hear this and are really inspired. I'm going to really work at this continuity moment to moment. Other people hear it and it just feels overwhelming. I'll never be able to do that. If it feels overwhelming, as it well might, just practice it in small chunks for the next 10 minutes or the next 15 minutes. I'm going to make the effort at that level of continuity. Ajahn Chah gave a very nice example of practice. He said, if you go out into the forest and try to lift some stones, if you try to lift the ones that are too heavy, you can't. You just strain yourself and you hurt yourself. If you lift the ones that are light enough, you're able to do it, you feel good, and as you do it, you're developing your strength. Work at this level of continuity for the duration that's comfortable. And as you do it, the ability will grow, the ability will strengthen, so you can do it for a little longer. There's one caution in hearing this. One can always be more mindful. There's always more to do. And so the mind can do two things with that at least two things. One is, it can get really down on oneself, you know, and become very self oh, there's so much more, and I'm doing it so badly, and just goes on that little tape. It's not so helpful. Let that one go. The fact that we can always do more, just to understand that this is the process of our refinement. You know, and just slowly and gently and gradually and with grace, we just begin to practice. We begin to develop it. Upandita used to ask me, 
Did you note more intentions or forget more? I mean, it was very obvious that I forgot many more than I noted. And just, I happened to have a fit of honesty and I told him that. <laughs> you know, and of course that was the, uh, the obvious understanding. There's always more. And so it's to relax into that and just to keep that forward edge of development, of effort, of refinement. There's developing right understanding and bringing that right understanding into our practice, that understanding that things are changing. It's developing that sense of respect and care for our own efforts and for the practice. It's strengthening the continuity, the different ways I mentioned. The fourth way of sharpening the spiritual powers, this is an easy one. It means having suitable conditions. It means peaceful surroundings, having good food, being careful with speech, which means really respecting the silence. Silence is an extremely powerful tool. Now, silence itself becomes an environment of clarity. It's not always easy what we say, but in the silence, we can't help but see it. Part of suitable conditions means the opportunity to hear the Dharma. It means the balancing of the postures, of sitting and standing and walking and lying. It means not too much writing. Be careful with this one. You know, for those of you who, who take notes on your sitting, the writing should be really minimal, just enough to, to remember the highlights. You don't want to write volumes. The fifth way of sharpening or strengthening the spiritual powers is something called the sign of samadhi. And this means paying attention to the quality of mind when the samadhi, the concentration, and the mindfulness are strong. Now you're in a particular period of practice and it seems really clear. The mindfulness is good, the concentration is good. Pay attention to the particular conditions surrounding that situation. What's the quality in the mind? What's the quality of the effort? What's the quality of surrender? What's the quality of acceptance? So you begin to understand the conditions behind good concentration and good mindfulness. Then in times of difficulty, which come in the, in the normal ups and downs of practice, when the difficulties are there, just to recollect, what was that quality of acceptance like? What was that quality of attention? What was the quality of effort? And often by that recollection of the sign of samadhi, we can recreate sort of the environment for greater acceptance, for seeing more clearly. 
next way of sharpening the powers of mind, the spiritual powers, is courageous effort. The word courage in English is quite an interesting word. It's derived from the same word as heart. So another way of understanding courage or courageous effort would be great-heartedness. We can develop this through the understanding of the difficulty of this task and that it requires this great-heartedness. This is not a trivial undertaking, this understanding of the mind, this transformation of consciousness. And so a tremendous resoluteness is needed. We need to cultivate and develop a very strong sense of spiritual urgency something that keeps us right on the edge of interest and investigation. What develops or what strengthens this sense of spiritual urgency, which is so essential? One is the understanding that this whole world of existence is made up of nama-rupa, of mental, physical phenomena, characterized universally by birth and growth and decay and death. And there is nothing which stops this process. The whole world is a manifestation of this process of mental, physical phenomena being born and growing, and decaying, and getting sick, and dying, over and over, in endless transformations. There's no one who can prevent this process from happening. That's tremendously awesome. You know, we so often get trapped or caught in an identification or reaction to a particular situation or object or experience, and we forget the magnitude and the inexorability of this process. It is just going on and on and on, following its own very profound law. And our life and everyone's life and all of existence is following this law. Within this process there is no place of rest, there is no place of safety, there is no refuge. And so when we see that, when we really have this sense you know, of what this life is, what life is, what existence is, it can create an amazing interest First, to understand it, and an urgency, a real, a burning interest to come to that place of peace, which many people have realized. 
There's another aspect of this process of existence which can arouse a sense of real urgency. Now that we don't have time, that we need to really look and investigate. And that is the understanding that nothing really belongs to us. You know, all the possessions, all the accumulations, all the relationships, everything will pass away or we will pass away. We can't count on anything. The Buddha said that our only true possessions, the only thing that follows, our actions and the fruit of our actions. That's the law governing the unfolding of this changing process. This conditions that. This becomes that. So when we know this, it leads to a lot of care with the actions. What kind of actions are being performed? What kind of fruits are being produced? One powerful image in the text, which always, just always felt very uh, impactful to me. Buddha said, imagine you pl- yourself living in a place with mountains all around, and the mountains started closing in you know, from each side, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west, crushing everything in its path. The Buddha asked, knowing this, how would you live? And really, that's our situation. You know, it's like death is coming from every side. Knowing that, how do we live? Buddha suggested that a wise way of living would be the cultivation of wholesome actions because that is our true possession, the cultivation of generosity, of really, of really developing that from a place of love and compassion, of developing sila, of non-harming, of cultivating wisdom, really penetrating understanding. Spiritual urgency is the wellspring of great-heartedness, of a resolute heart, because it gives us the strength to go through difficulties, to go through the boredom, to go through all the hindrances and the restlessness, because we have a sense of the magnitude, the magnitude of the journey, the, the awesomeness of this Dhamma unfolding. right understanding into our practice so that it really conditions our attitude towards experience of not holding on. Care and respect for ourselves and for the practice, continuity, real continuity, moment to moment, and developing that in a gentle way, in a careful way. 
suitability of conditions, the sign of samadhi, courageous effort, that great-heartedness. The last of the ways of strengthening these spiritual powers, the last one I'll mention tonight, are balancing the factors of enlightenment. When things are difficult, when the mind is discouraged, you know, when it's really hard going, that's when we need to brighten the mind. We need to inspire the mind. And so those factors of investigation, of effort, of rapture, those are the things that we need to strengthen. When things are difficult, a way of strengthening the investigation is actually to become interested in discovering the nature of that difficulty. It's as if we ask ourselves, okay, what is going on now? Now, what face, what facet of the mind is presenting itself? How am I getting caught? How am I getting hooked? What's happening? And so the difficulty itself becomes the inspiration to investigate. And those places of difficulty or discouragement or heaviness can become themselves the time of the greatest opening, the greatest understanding, if we inspire ourselves to look carefully, to really understand what's going on here. Sometimes the mind is in the opposite phase. It's very exuberant. It just had a cosmic experience and the mind's all excited and can't wait to Write it down. <laughs> At that time, we need to kind of just calm down a bit. You know, there's too much exuberance, there's too much energy. We need to develop some calm and some concentration, some equanimity. And just to play, you know, to really see which factors need developing, which factors need subduing at a particular time. One of the things which can help us bring these factors into balance is to realize that practice is proceeding through different phases. It's a development, it's a developmental model. That is, one phase of understanding leads into the next, leads into the next. And it's very much likened to just the development of a child. You know, from the first baby, just as a baby and an infant, and then teething and crawling and walking. And, and at each stage, it's difficult. You know, each stage is something new, and often it's not easy. You know, and just as a baby is learning to walk, and it keeps falling down, and then it gets up and it falls down again. And often in those times of transition, it's both difficult and there's irritation, but it is the opening to the next phase. It's very similar in the practice. You know, you're going along and everything seems fine, and then something happens and it feels like you're right back at the beginning. You're not back at the beginning. It's like a transition time to the next stage, to the next 
level of understanding. Those times can be difficult. We can be irritable. If you know that, and you can recognize, oh yeah, this is, this is okay, this is just a transition time, it allows the mind to create that balance of these factors of enlightenment. Kind of settle back, become accepting. There is one last way of developing these factors of mind, which I'll just mention since you've had a tremendous amount of experience with it, and that is patience with pain. Pain is part of it. It's part of being alive. There's meditative pain that just comes as we begin to see what's accumulated in the body. There's pain of old or chronic diseases. You know, that just as we begin to open, it's as if it comes to the surface and we relive, we re-experience. One very interesting insight into pain is to see how changes of posture masks dukkha. Now maybe some people think, oh, well, I don't have much pain. Try not changing posture. You know, you're sitting. How long can you sit? The pain will come. Stand up, fine. Standing. How long can you stand? One time I was so fed up with pain, I just, I got this big, thick piece of foam. And I just lay down and nothing was crossed. <laughs> and I was just lying, you know, supported by this foam. It didn't take that long. You know, and the pain started to come. But in our lives, we're continually moving and changing and shifting posture. And that's the great mask of the truth of dukkha. And so in our practice, as we begin to be more restrained in that movement, this truth of suffering, this truth of pain begins to reveal itself. And it's, it's a discovery about the nature of this body, of this mind. So we need a lot of patience with it, just to be very soft, to open to it, to work with it. With all of these things, you know, the right understanding. All conditioned things are subject to decay. And what that means in terms of our relationship to experience. Really letting that one go in. Care and respect for ourselves, for the practice, for others. Refining the continuity. Enjoying these, these suitability of surroundings. Recalling the sign of samadhi, a courageous effort, that great-heartedness, developing in the understanding of the spiritual urgency and the vastness of this process, this immense process of birth and decay and death. Balancing the factors of enlightenment, sometimes arousing energy, sometimes calming the mind, perseverance with pain, 
It's just a steadiness and a softness. These are the ways that the spiritual powers can be strengthened, can be refined. You don't have to take it all on at once. These are just meant as possibilities for you, you know, to incorporate as is possible into your practice. It's just a way of refining the work that's being done. Sometimes when people come in for interviews, I have so much... um, I just have so much joy sometimes as people are describing what to you are probably the most ordinary things of your sitting. Because it's just that sense of... just that sense of opening to what is true. You know, and that sense of exploration and opening is so wondrous. And in the middle of this three months, you may forget that from time to time. I'm just reminding you (laughs) that it really is, it really is wondrous. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.